So, uh, Josiah, please come on up. <laughs> Alright, so uh, as we're handing those things out,
I have a podcast, or I have a, a teaching thing on that. You can see on my podcast uh, called um, Creationism, the Grand Creationism Debate. Um, but um, getting back to our topic today, it's the, the situation today between Christians and non-Christians is a little bit like this. You got a bunch of scientists all together. This is an old joke that I didn't come up with, but I like to use it. And the scientists, all these atheistic scientists say, we don't need you anymore, God, because we can create life. And God says, all right, we'll set up a time, we'll set up a place, and we'll have a contest. I'll make life, and you make life. And so all the scientists start gleefully rubbing their hands together, and, and they all gather around this pile of sand, and they got all their instruments and tools, and they're all ready. When all of a sudden a voice from heaven says, hey, get your own dirt. kind of funny. It wasn't super funny, but uh, you can laugh about how not funny it was. Um, but there's a serious point underlying that, that um, to get to the point where we can talk about dirt on planet Earth, in our solar system, in our galaxy, in our universe, there's a lot of steps that have to happen before we can even talk about evolution. And so the contemporary debate between Christians and non-Christians is not so much talking about evolution, although there is a lot of discussion there. But all the steps that come before that, and actually the steps that come before evolution, are a lot harder for the evolutionist to resolve, or the atheist to resolve. Um, so these are the books I just mentioned, they're on your handout as well. Um, so before we can talk about evolution, we need to talk about the Big Bang. Uh, we need to talk about uh, the initial conditions of a life permitting universe, the Goldilocks conditions of a habitable planet origins of life, irreducible complexity, biodiversity in a limited amount of time, and DNA from random mutation. So we're going to fly over all six of these today, or all seven of these, in our discussion today. Now, a lot of atheists are going to push back when I start talking about proofs for God from science. They're going to push back with, um, back up one. Um, well, isn't this just a God of the gaps argument? Now, the idea of the God of the Gaps argument is that science was progressing just fine until it got to something that science couldn't explain. For example, lightning. So ancient man looked at lightning and said, we don't know what causes that. Well, it must be God. And this seemed to be a solution at the time that kind of filled this gap. Now we can move on with our lives. We know what causes lightning. God causes lightning. Or, or Zeus or, or um, Baal or, or whoever. Um, but then the scientific knowledge progresses, eventually that gap is closed with increased science, and so we don't need God anymore. And so the argument is, for one thing, this is lazy, for another thing, it, it, it hinders science, and for another thing, once we have more scientific information, we're not going to need God anymore, because science is going to be able to explain everything. Well, what can we say about this very common argument that uh, all attempts to prove God from science is just a God of the gaps? Well, historically, we could say that Christianity did not hinder science, but actually science grew out of the Christian uh, West. And most of the founders of Christianity were Christians, and, and many very important scientists today, including some of the written books here, are Christians. But more importantly, the question before us today is, what is the ex best explanation of the universe? What is the best explanation of the universe? And specifically the facts that are in front of us. And our two options are, either matter and random chance, or intelligent design. That's the order backwards. Either there was an intelligent designer who was powerful, who was smart, who was able to do this,
with some intelligence, or else it was just random chance and, um, and uh, matter. Random chance acting on matter. In fact, for the atheistic naturalist, um, the basic way that they will explain just about everything is to say, if you have an infinity of time and you have an infinity of chance, sooner or later you're going to have a little bit of order. And this is what they're always kind of get back to. Well, sooner or later, in the grand scheme of things, if you have enough chance, there's going to be a bit of order here somewhere or another. And so this is option one. Option two, obviously, is intelligent design that a god, um, a powerful intelligent being created everything. So we're going to start off with a bang here, so to speak. Um, the Big Bang was, um, how can I say, it, it shook up the scientific community tremendously when Einstein came up with it in the, was it the 1930s or 40s with his theories of, of relativity. Now, the big deal about the Big Bang is that before this, people, scientists tended to believe that the universe was eternal. And if the universe is eternal, if matter is eternal, uh, and you have infinite time and infinite matter, then sooner or later you're going to have a bit of order. But what Einstein discovered is that no, actually the universe had a beginning. And if you have a beginning, then, you, then that raises all sorts of problems. For one thing, you have limited time. But also, um, the Big Bang is the surprising, <coughs> amazing, uh, mind-boggling theory or uh, conclusion that all of matter and energy, because matter and energy are interchangeable, all matter and energy and time itself and space itself all came into being at the Big Bang. Before the Big Bang, we can't really talk cogently, coherently about before because there was no time before the Big Bang. Time was created at a specific point 13 and a half billion years ago. Before that, there was no time. And before that, there was no space for matter to be in, and there was no matter and no energy. So what science has actually discovered in the last hundred years is that the universe was created as Christians used to say in Latin, ex nihilo, from nothing. Science has actually come to support the basic fundamental Christian claim that we have been, um, been lambasted for for hundreds of years, that creation, that the universe was created from nothing. Who would have guessed that? But we need to ask the further question, what sort of a thing could create space, time, matter, and energy? Well, it couldn't be matter, because matter was created in circular reasoning. It would have to be something that is timeless, that is spaceless, that is outside of matter, and that has a different sort of energy than what we have, material energy. And all these things point directly towards God. Um, of course, um, atheists and scientists have a different idea, is that there are many, many, many universes out there, um, and that we just happen to be on one of them. Now, the, the problem with this, of course, is that there's no evidence of these other universes. We have no way to see them or measure them. Um, there's no explanation for where they came from. And there's a really big problem. How can these universes be out there eternally? You would think if it's eternal that it would conserve energy. But if it's conserving energy, if it's not losing any energy, how would it create something? But if it's creating things, like it's, there's something out there that's like a, a big factory or, or a big machine that's, that's spitting off all these universes, you'd think it'd be running through its energy and using it up. So th this is a big problem. There's many big problems with uh, the multiverse, but this is one of them. In addition to this, there is something, another really astounding thing that they have discovered about the Big Bang 
is that um, the laws of science as we know them, okay, I'll just read this quote and explain it. The laws of science as we know them at present contain many fundamental numbers like the size of the electrical charge of the electrical electron and the ratio of the masses of the proton and the electron. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. The initial Big Bang conditions were incredibly precise, fine-tuned. They could have been, there's at least four variables, and he's got two here, another one of them is the, how much entropy or raw energy was in the universe at the beginning. These could have been different, but they were set to a specific uh, ratio that enabled life to happen. And so scientists are continually asking the question, and this has been the big question of the last 50 years or so, why were the initial conditions so incredibly precise? Um, and this is again why they make recourse to uh, the multiverse. And one way of, um, in addition to the multiverse, okay, there's many, many universes out there, we just happen to be in a life-permitting universe. Um, and along with this, they will sometimes say, uh, hold on, I need to get my water. Where is it here? Can somebody get me? Oh, there it is. There's a theory called the anthropic principle, which simply states, look, if we weren't in a life-permitting universe, we wouldn't be here to talk about it. The only reason we're sitting here talking about being in a life-permitting universe is because we're in a life-permitting universe. If we were in a non-life-permitting universe, we would be dead. And so uh, this is a way of, I've heard somebody say, uh, it's kind of like a puddle looking at the mud around it and saying, isn't it great that this mud is perfectly shaped to fit me? when really it's kind of the other way around. So the, there's many things we could say about the anthropic principle, but let's just go for um, a little analogy here. Imagine, okay, kind of like we, we just won the, lot, the universe lottery, we just happened to be at a good, at a good one. Um, imagine you were traveling overseas and uh, you were in a country that you didn't know super well the laws of the land, you, you broke a really important rule, and you got sentenced to death by firing squad. So, you're there, you've got the blindfold on, you've got 20 people at point-blank range with guns, and they're all counting down in a foreign language, ready, aim, fire! And you hear bang, 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 and you're still alive. Now, at that point, you could say, well, obviously, I'm still alive. I mean, if I was dead, I wouldn't be here to think about it. But that does nothing to explain the incredibly improbable fact that you're actually still alive, in, in spite of the fact that you should be dead. And you're still at this point going to ask the question, well, why am I alive? What happened? What, what conspired together to make me live through this situation? Is this some sort of a hoax? Did my friends, you know, conspire to try and scare the living daylights out of me? Or, or what's going on? And this is what our universe should be pushing us to ask. Why are we still alive? Why are we in a life-permitting universe when it was, would be so much more likely to be in a non-life-permitting universe? And the conditions for life become even more precise. Proof number three talks about the Goldilocks conditions of a life-permitting universe. And you can just Google this. This isn't, uh, you know, only Christians talking about this. There's between 50 and up to 80 conditions necessary for a life-permitting universe. We used to think that there were, you know, you need to have liquid water, it'd be kind of not too hot, not too cold. 
But there's a lot more. The more that we know about life, the more that we know about um, you know, the, the needs of biological life, the more precise all these needs get. So I wrote them in your notes so that you guys weren't scrambling to try and write them all. Um, the first one is the stability of our universe and galaxy and our location. So all these things are you know, large topics. Um, but even just the fact that we're in our galaxy on one of the spiral arms, uh, not in the center of our galaxy, um, is essential to life. The size and stability of our star, not all stars, of course, are the same size. Um, they don't all create the same sort of radiation. They don't have the same, um, same lifespan. The proximity of our Earth to the sun allowing for liquid water. The amount of water on Earth. The size and composition of the Earth as a rocky planet. Not all planets are rocky. You have Jupiter, you have Saturn, you have you know, Uranus that are not rocky, that are made out of gases. Um, the stability of the atmosphere and the chemical composition of the Earth and the ozone layer. So we have a very finely tuned amount of oxygen and nitrogen and, and a whole bunch of other things that are all necessary for life. And then there's some really interesting ones that you might not know about. Um, and one, the next one, uh, next slide, um, is uh, who here is, has seen this? Northern Lights. Click it again. It's supposed to go. I got some gifts. Um, so when we're out there looking at these amazing Northern Lights, what we're actually seeing? Do you guys know what we're actually seeing? What's that? Magnetosphere. We're seeing the magnetosphere. Yeah, magnetosphere in action. Do you guys know why there's sometimes more and sometimes less? Uh, Northern Lights. What's that? When it's cold. When it's cold. Um, it's related to uh, when there's solar storms on the sun, because what we're actually seeing is ions flying or particles flying out of the sun and being re reflected around the Earth by our magnetosphere. Um, the Earth has um, a solid iron core, a, a core of solid iron. Um, it's not solid because it's molten, but at the center of the Earth it is iron that is spinning around. And what that does, is it does two things. For one thing, we have a North Pole and a South Pole. Other planets don't have this because they're not magnetic. Um, but also, we have the whole planet is a great big magnet. It's, it has gravitational pull because it, is, it has mass, but also because of the iron, it has magnet, it's magnetically charged. And what this does is, as the sun is shooting out all these rays, the sun is this great big you know, nuclear reaction happening. And so it's shooting out all the time all these particles. Um, and these particles are potentially extremely dangerous. It's actually um, one of the reasons that satellites often fail is because they're bombarded all the time by these particles called the solar wind. Um, scientists theorize that Mars used to have um, an atmosphere on it caused by the volcano spewing out gases and stuff like that. It used to have clouds and, and an atmosphere. But the solar wind just stripped it off and pushed it all out into space. It's a very strong force, this solar wind and all these particles flying out from the sun. But because we have an iron core inside of our planet, we're protected because all these particles are electrically or magnetically charged, and our, our planet protects us from that, or our, our iron core. As well, we have a moon that is freakishly large for the size of planet that we have. Um, and there's various theories about how, how our moon was perhaps caused by uh, a very unlikely hitting of a very large asteroid that caused bits to break off and they eventually became the moon because the moon has the same um, elemental signature as the earth. 
But we have a very, very large moon. It's very unusual. You look at the other planets, they have these teeny tiny little moons compared to a very large planet. And um, this does a number of things, one of which is it slows down our rotation. Without the moon, a day would be about an hour or two. Um, and also, the moon pulls our oceans around, causing the oceans to breathe, so to speak, to, to move. And that's very essential for life in the water and also life on land. As well, we have the ozone layer. And one that's really fun to talk about is Jupiter. Now, Jupiter is this tremendous planet that is two and a half times larger than all the other planets put together. It is a, tr a ginormous planet. Um, and again, there's all sorts of explanations for why it's so large, because you would think they would kind of gradually get bigger and bigger as they grow and be somewhat more consistent, but Jupiter is just massive compared to the others. And it goes around the sun relatively quickly. It goes around in just three and a half years, even though it's much further out uh, than we are. And what Jupiter actually does, I found this little cute picture online, um, is Jupiter is like the big brother in the solar system protecting us and the other planets from asteroids and meteorites. I forget what they're called when they're flying this in space. They're meteorites or asteroids. Um, meteorites, I think. They're comets when they... Anyways. There's meteorites, asteroids, and comets, and I forget how, how it all works. Bits of rocks flying from space. Um, when they're coming towards Earth, they're coming into the solar system, they have to go past Jupiter. And because Jupiter is so large, the larger, the more mass uh, an object has, the more gravitational pull it has. And so Jupiter is so large that it has a very large pull. And it keeps on pulling in these meteorites that otherwise would head towards Earth or other planets. Um, they end up crashing into Jupiter. In fact, this just happened in 1994 in the um, Shoemaker-Levy uh, comet that was found. This is a picture of gravity wells and how it pulls towards so this is a picture of Jupiter, and this is a picture from, taken in 1994 of a large comet, uh, several kilometers across, that was coming into our solar system. And as it passed by Jupiter, it got pulled in and shattered into, I think, 20 pieces, and then crashed into Jupiter at various points. Now this is really significant, because this comet could have been heading towards Earth, and instead it got sucked into Jupiter's orbit. And these dust plumes here, actually I think I have a quote for this, um, the freight train of fragments smashed into Jupiter with the force of 300 million atomic bombs. Or if it were all afraid of Cold War and stuff like that, but just imagine 300 million atomic bombs. The fragments created huge plumes that were 2,000 to 3,000 kilometers high and heated the atmosphere to, to temperatures as hot as 30,000 to 40,000 degrees Celsius. Shoemaker-Levy 9 left dark ring stars that were eventually erased by Jupiter's winds. Scientists have calculated that the comet was originally about one and a half to two kilometers wide. If a similar sized object were to hit Earth, it would be devastating. The impact might send dust and debris into the sky, creating a haze that would cool the atmosphere and absorb sunlight, enveloping the entire planet in darkness. If the haze lasted long enough, plant life would die along with the people and animals that depend on it to survive. And this is from the NASA website. So, yay Jupiter. Thank you, Lord, for Jupiter. Uh, this freakishly large planet in the sky that goes around quite quickly and has a very large mass and sucks in these comets. And as I was looking online, uh, it said um, there were a number of web pages that said uh, in 2016 an amateur uh, astronomer saw another collision with Jupiter. Uh, and I haven't been able to uh, verify that yet. 
but Jupiter is out there protecting us. Um, so there's all these very improbable things that enable life to happen on this specific planet. If we didn't have something like Jupiter, all these other things could be in place, but we could get hit by an asteroid every couple thousand years and it would be back to square one. As well, the origins of life. Before we can talk about evolution and natural selection and all those sorts of things happening, we need to talk about proof number four, the origin of life. So at some point in the past, go ahead. Uh, why is that there? Go to the cup of sand. There should be a cup of sand somewhere. There you go. At some time in the past, from an atheistic perspective, sand and water and some other chemicals made the leap over to life, biological life. What is life? A life form is capable of, of taking in food, able to absorb energy from that food, able to grow, able to adapt, and able to reproduce. So at some point, somehow, sand and water and dirt jumped over to become living. And Michael Behe wrote, no. Yeah, and this is something that um, science has not been able to recreate. We have not yet, as far as I know, been able to recreate life. We keep saying, so-and-so created life, so-and-so created life. What they're really doing is just copying life. But have we really created life? We can create now uh, nanites, teeny tiny little robots. But are they able to take in energy, grow, adapt, and reproduce? It doesn't seem like they are. But even if they were, even if we were able to create life after all these hundreds of years of scientific progress, wouldn't it prove that really biological life is the product of intelligent design and not random chance and mutation? Because we are completely confident if we create a sterile environment, say for example in a surgery ward or a hospital, if we kill all of all the biological life, we are confident that that room will stay sterile unless we introduce biological life into it. Non-life doesn't just randomly become life, and this is a very big hurdle for atheists to overcome. As well, Michael Behe wrote uh, the book, um, what is the next slide? No, back up to so Michael B. he wrote the book uh, Darwin's Black Box and his basic thesis was look, a hundred years ago um, Michael was writing in the 90's um, when Darwin came up with, with evolution, natural selection, all that stuff all that they had the best they had was microscopes and they would look at bacteria, these little simple one cell organisms, these little squiggly things and they'd squiggle around and then they would grow and they would divide and expand and they would, they would do their little thing that's the best he could do um, but now we have so much more information about even these simple one-celled organisms. Um, and I'm just going to show you a few little gifts. You can look at uh, this sort of stuff on YouTube. There's all sorts of little videos that, that I made. Go forward. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. These are all gifts. So these are little microtubes that come together in thin cells. And then go to the next one. And these are little motor proteins that pull other cells along to where they need to go, along these little cells within a cell. This is what's going on within even like a bacteria or within you. Uh, and then the next slide here. One of the most amazing things, um, and this is something that uh, BT and others in the intelligent design community really talk about, is one of the most efficient motors in all the, the world 
is attached to a bacteria. These simple one-celled um, organisms have these little tails called a flagellum. And these tails have all these moving parts. They, this is in French, sorry. They have the filament, uh, the elbow, the junction, the disc, uh, the rotor, the, the motor at the bottom. They run on acids. Acids turning into uh, base solutions is what actually runs the thing. And it's lubricated, there's very little friction. And this elbow here is actually able to, to be modified to turn so that the bacteria can actually go wherever it wants to go. Moving towards food and away from danger. So all this stuff is going on inside of a teeny tiny little bacteria that supposedly just popped into being out of nothing. Just with one day there was sand, the next day all of a sudden there's this little thing with a little tail on it that's buzzing around in water. So how could this happen? More precisely, can we go back to the mousetrap? Is there a little bit out of order? Sorry about that. Um, what Michael Behe said in the idea of irreducible complexity, he said you, you can reduce things down to a certain point, but at a certain point you can't get less complex or else things just don't work. If you think about that, that crazy little tail thing, it can't get less complex. All those things are essential for it to work. It's kind of like a mousetrap. You've got the hammer, the spring, the holding bar, the platform, the catch. You need all these parts or else a mousetrap isn't a mousetrap. If you take just one of these things away, you're not going to catch any mice. And within the cell, what we're finding is there's, the deeper we dig, the more there's complexity upon complexity upon complexity. And there's things that you can't talk about them evolving from simpler states. Because if you get simpler than that, you don't have life. You get simpler than that, the parts don't work. They don't do anything constructive. And you can't imagine previous states that are less simple that would have been advantageous to the species and then grow towards um, something like a flagellum. As well, I'll just go through the labs too quickly here. Um, there's the tremendous diversity of life. Um, according to scientists, uh, life, you know, the plant's been around for four and a half billion years. Life began 3.8 billion years ago, which seems like a long time. But actually, microbiologists are saying this isn't actually enough time for all the biological life, all the biological diversity that we see to evolve, because it's just so diverse and so complex which is why the theory that uh, life was seeded here from other planets, maybe even by aliens or by an asteroid, maybe life was developed somewhere else where they had more time and came here, this is an actually a live theory within the scientific community. And it gets even harder for, for scientists because most of life um, didn't grow from the Darwinian tree. You see maybe that tree where things started here and then they kind of forked off and forked off to get more and more complex. That's not what the fossil record actually showed. If you can get past all this, um, that's the flagellum. Um, most types of life actually came into being during the Cambrian explosion. The Cambrian explosion is a time uh, 30 to 40 million years ago um, when a the major animal phyla emerged over a relatively short period of time. So the Cambrian explosion. Um, yeah, it was, was about 500 million years ago, according to uh, um, you know, scientists. Um, before this, there wasn't very much going on. You had some worms, you had some bacteria, you had very basic stuff going on. And then within 20 to 25 million years, almost all of the basic types of animals all popped on the scene. And I read one author say it was as though you were having one new type of animal arriving on the scene every year for like thousands of years. It's just so many types 
of animals that all pop on the scene all at the same time. And then yes, from there they all evolve into their various types. But it's, it's very difficult to explain how all these sorts of complex life forms suddenly came on the scene. Vertebrates, invertebrates, ma not mammals yet, but all sorts of different types. As well, the final proof is uh, DNA. That um, the more that we learn about DNA, and this is a really cutting edge field because we're just learning more about DNA now, um, it is like a computer code. It is like a language, and each little bit of, of the chain of DNA carries vital information that has the blueprint for an entire complex structure such as a human being, which I, you guys already know this. But when you think about all that information packed into a tiny little strand, and even such a, something like a bacteria wouldn't work if it didn't have functioning DNA. And somehow, atheists need to explain how this came into being naturally from chance. It would be very much like saying that Microsoft operating system came into being by chance. Because it's the same sort of thing. It's like a code, it's like a language that creates something else. As well, all the problems with irreducible complexity apply to DNA. You can't have certain strands of code get any simpler than they are, or else that code won't work. Um, and most mutations, virtually all mutations that we see in DNA are um, cause deformities or are fatal to animals. So how, how could DNA uh, develop, develop and evolve? So all these things I could go on and on, um, but instead I just want to refer you to the books I have at the end of your handout. Um, specifically, a really good place to start is uh, Lee Strobel's A Case for the Creator. He goes through all these arguments uh, in, in a very engaging uh, way. Um, and uh, so I would just refer you to that. I want to close our time here by talking about poop. If that's okay. Uh, so a few weeks ago, I discovered a little wet spot on my roof. And uh, well, a few months ago, I discovered a wet spot. A few weeks ago, I found a moldy spot on my roof, and I said, all right, I gotta deal with this. Cut it open and found that when they built my house, uh, the, the contractors forgot to put glue in one of the joints of the sewer. And so it was, it was dripping slowly on uh, part of my ceiling. And so, you know, I don't really know anything about plumbing, but I went to the store and got the stuff and tried things and tried something else and didn't really know what I was doing. I spent a whole day up there with, you know, stuff slowly dripping as I was trying to deal with this problem. And uh, during the course of that, I just had this flashback moment to uh, when I was a kid, probably 10 or 11, and I had flushed a rag down the toilet. And it caused serious catastrophe in our plumbing. And uh, because I was 10, I couldn't deal with it. You know, Dad had to deal with it, and he had to get into the pipes and cut things out and, and do something. And I just had this flash memory of my dad walking out with his hands just nasty, walking out just kind of out somewhere to wash his hands. And anyway, so I just had this thought as I was working on my plumbing, and I thought, wow, I need to call my dad up and say thanks for working, playing with poop so that you know, our toilets worked. And you know, in addition to that, thanks for, for working hard you know, at a, at a um, blue-collar job all my childhood so that I could you know, have, a, have a house to stay in, and thanks for fixing up the house and keeping it working, and just all the things that as a kid you don't think about the fact that your dad does. You know? and once you're a dad, you realize, Actually, there is a lot of work that goes into this. And I want to bring that back here to say, um, what is known about God is evident, because God has made it evident to us. 
since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made, so that we're without excuse, so that we who know God, I'm just paraphrasing him a little bit to change it, we who know God ought to be grateful. We ought to be grateful. Just realizing how much God has finely tuned and prepared so that we can walk outside and experience nature. For God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's close our time in prayer. Thank you, God, that um, you have played, you have, you have orchestrated everything so that we can have life. And so that the life that we can enjoy with our families and friends um, can, can be possible. And Lord, I thank you for our magnetic core, and I thank you for our atmosphere, and I thank you for our moon, and I thank you for our sun, and I thank you for where we are in our galaxy, and all these things, that, and Jupiter, and all these things that allow life to happen, and allow us to feel safe. And I just pray, um, I just praise you for that, and thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's stand and sing.